For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a uh, new podcast I think you should try. It's called Dear Franklin Jones. It's from uh, Stitcher, and it's a story of reporter Jonathan Hirsch. I've done a little work with Jonathan in the past. The guy is insanely talented, and uh, growing up, his family was a little different. They followed a controversial spiritual leader named Franklin Jones. To Jonathan's parents, Franklin Jones was a god, uh, but to people outside the group, he was a cult leader. Dear Franklin Jones is a new podcast from Stitcher. Join Jonathan on a journey to find out what really happened and whether the group really did become a cult. Subscribe to Dear Franklin Jones in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get this show. Also sponsoring the show this week, Mubi. Algorithms, uh, they don't get great storytelling, which is why an algorithm has no business choosing the films that you watch. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films handpicked from around the globe. They've only got 30 at a time, so you don't have to spend your whole evening scrolling, looking for something to watch. It's guaranteed to be good if it's on Mubi. You can try Mubi right now for free for 30 days at mubi.com slash longform. That's mubi.com slash longform. Here's the program. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Hey, guys. Hey, we're, we're getting the gang together this weekend for a, uh, we're getting interviewed. Is that correct? Yeah, we're getting interviewed uh, live on stage at the On Air Festival. It's being held at the White Hotel Convenient in Brooklyn, New York. distance from my Who's house. our interviewer? Former Long Form Podcast editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Oh, God. She yeah. knows where the bodies are buried. She knows every secret we have. Uh, that should be a lot of fun. I look forward to that. Um, who, who did we? Who did we? Uh, who did we get on the show this week? This week on the show, uh, I went to Los Angeles. I was there last week, and I talked to uh, Sean Fennessy, uh, proprietor of uh, The Ringer. Yeah, he's the editor, formerly of Grantland, editor in chief of The Ringer. He uh, was also an editor at Grantland. Uh, he now hosts a podcast at the ringer called the big picture where he interviews filmmakers. Uh, I think it's really good. Yeah. He gets really, he gets like, um, he gets the best. I know. I know. And, uh, he's a long form podcast of people interviewing film directors. (laughs) (laughs) He, uh, he also has been writing a lot for the ringer, sort of these like 30,000 foot view film industry trend Uh columns. 
that I also think are really good. And we sort of talked about how you balance like running a place with 70 employees and doing a podcast and writing a ton. And uh, also talked a little bit about the end of Grantland and how he thinks that uh, that website is uh, remembered incorrectly. Um, mm. It was fun. It was fun. And they, wow. I, and they Intri- also host. Intriguing tease from Max. Yeah. Well, they, and they hosted me. I need to say thank you to the, uh, all the, the kind people at The Ringer. I was going to say, I, I listen to the Bill Simmons podcast, and uh, that means that this setting and Sean uh, Fennessy are part of the like background of my week every week. Yeah. I also, as you know, am a long time what? Bill, <laughs> Bill Simmons really? listener. Yeah, it's true. Really? It's true. I've listened to a few episodes. I had not heard that. Are you into Boston sports? Listen, I'm just going to say it, all right? I have been trying to get Bill Simmons on this podcast since we started this podcast. I was I, hoping this conversation would go there. I have, I have pulled uh, I've pulled every trick I know of. Yeah, I've asked um, for uh, completely ludicrous favors. I've asked people I don't know who just know Bill Simmons to ask him to come on the show. Yeah. I, Evan, you and I went and taped an episode with Malcolm Gladwell in Malcolm Gladwell's house years ago. And I was like, hey, Malcolm Gladwell, <laughs> I don't know you. Will you write your friend Bill Simmons an email and tell him to come on this podcast? To no avail. I've been wow. nixed at every it's like turn. He's, he's laughing at you. It definitely he's is. He's sitting in that office while with you taping a podcast in his very office, just laughing. Yeah, at he's you. right down the hall, probably. Uh, yep, uh, for sure, right down the hall. Uh, yeah, I think he's probably thought about it like uh, for a grand total of fifteen seconds ever. Yeah, but he was definitely laughing hysterically for those entire fifteen seconds. Great. Well, now I don't even I don't even know if I should root for him to come on the show or continue to humiliate you. You know what? I got Sean on. Yeah. And, uh, next best thing. Not even the next best thing. Sean was great. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a fantastic conversation. Uh, if you're looking uh, to turn the fantastic conversation you're having on your email newsletter with the people who follow you into sales, cold hard sales, uh, you need a a landing page from Mailchimp. Uh, this is a great concept, actually. Like, there's a lot of times when I don't think you need like a full. A full-blown website for what you're doing. Maybe you're selling a T-shirt. Uh, maybe you're selling something intangible. Uh, Mailchimp allows you to build those pages directly within Mailchimp. They convert them and give statistics very elegantly from the email newsletter. Uh, I think it's a cool service. I, yeah. I'm in favor of it. It's a newish thing that Mailchimp. There's a lot of uh, a lot of new stuff happening over there in Mailchimp. We're going to be telling you about some of it here on the show. Uh, thanks to Mailchimp for their support. And now here's Max with Sean Fennessy. Hey, Sean. Hi, Max. Thanks for coming on the show, but also thanks for hosting me at your office. Yeah, I've really put you in the, in the clinch here. I mean, uh, it's an away game. I've done a bunch of away games. I, like, I'm, I'm comfortable now on the road. Okay. But we're in your very nice studio. I wouldn't say that I'm comfortable in my home, so <laughs> this will be interesting. I've done one other interview. I remember when I was walking over here, I interviewed like Favreau. Mm-hmm. During the keeping it sixteen hundred days. Yes, you did. But that was just like I think I actually used your office. You did. You were in my office and maybe brought my own mics. I don't recall. We were a very nascent operation at that point. Yeah, you guys were ramshackle, but still, you had like how many people did you have then? Sixty something. Yeah, but and we've only added maybe seven or nine since then. So we actually have been modestly growing since that moment. But this is, I mean, this is like swanky. We're in a nice place right now. Let's not overdo it. Come on. You, you know, you, it's, a, it's a room that you, has walls. There's like soundproofing stuff. There's yeah. a big clock. Yeah. These look like expensive microphones. We got a clock. You got a clock Can you now? believe it? Yeah. No, it's, um, this year we have professionalized. That's the goal is to get a little bit sharper, a little bit clearer with what we're mm. doing. We like literally started a business. So we're figuring out how to be a business now. 
I was listening uh, on my way over here to an interview you did with Peter Kafka, like maybe the week the site launched, June 2016. A very easy time in my life. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. didn't seem stressed at all. You <laughs> seemed, seemed super happy to be taking an hour out to like, basically every time he asked you to be like, this is amazing. Shouldn't you celebrate? You were like, I will not do that, sir. I won't be doing it today either. Under no circumstances will I be celebrating. That's right. Try and go back there, though. Go back to like June 2016. How close is the ringer today to what you thought it was going to be then? How much have you guys stuck to the plan? I think we've stuck to the plan, but it's not close to what I thought it was going to be, if that makes sense. It makes no sense. Okay. I thought that we would be in a slightly different place in digital media. I didn't think that our podcast network was going to work quite as well as it has. Yeah. I just didn't know what kind of group we were going to have. It turns out that our staff is much younger than I was expecting. It turns out that our sensibility is like much more whimsical than I was expecting. It turns out that that's okay. I think I was, I had a lot of anxiety about carrying on some haughty tradition that was like mm-hmm. always illusory. You know, it was more just like, what do we like? What are we obsessed with? What do we think is interesting? Do you think the whimsy is just due to the kids? Like, are kids whimsical now? I tell you, I feel a little whimsical. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, more than I ever expected. Um, no, I, I think that's part of it. You know, I think it's hard to envision a plan and then execute that plan clearly. Yeah. And because we hired a lot of people that we thought were promising, we didn't necessarily understand what the development process was going to be like for everybody. The same way I didn't understand what my development process was going to be like. So that part of it has changed a little bit of what we've been doing. Well, I really want to talk about your development process. Oh, boy. <laughs> How have you developed? Like, what's uh, what does that mean to you? Well, I started out thinking I was going to be a journalist. And... I'm still a journalist to an extent, but I think I have, I'm just doing nine other things. And also, I didn't know what kind of journalist I was going to be. Mm-hmm. I, I started out in news in college, and then I quickly realized I shouldn't be in news. I had no knack for it. I didn't think it valorized like writing in a way that I thought was interesting. Um, like you didn't like reporting? I do like reporting, but I don't like hard news reporting, yeah. if that makes sense. It's just a different ethic. And Were there like stories in college that you oh, were yeah. trying to do and didn't do as well as you wanted to? Yeah. the um, I remember this quite specifically when I was a freshman. The sort of cafeteria system at my college, I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York, was Sodexo, which was a corporation that was known to be one of the biggest private prison investors in America at the time. And this was sort of before private prisons were like an issue of major note. This is early 2000s, late 90s. And Ithaca is an extremely liberal stronghold in the middle of upstate New York, which is quite conservative. And the student body was up in arms over the private prison system. And they wanted them to divest. And so my first assignment was to just go down and to sit with protesters on our campus who were demanding that the college and Sodexo divest from private prisons. And I was like, this is not my bag. <laughs> like, this is not my thing. And I had great conversations and I did all the assignments and I reported through those years. But if you listen to the podcast that we make or read the site or any of the things that we're doing, you can see that it's just like a slightly different tone that I'm interested in. Yeah. Just not enough whimsy in the hard news. There wasn't enough whimsy in the private prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. And what happened next? I, I have, I feel like the first time I really remember recognizing your byline was like the Michael Bay oral oh, yeah. history. Yeah. Which you were at GQ, but you were writing music stuff before then. Like, I feel like you were writing a lot of like early Kanye stuff. Mm-hmm. How did you get from like not reporting well about private prisons to to there? It was a pretty typical path. It is like I guess not a typical path anymore. I figured out I wanted to be in magazines around the time I was just talking about. 
had an internship at Spin. I really looked up to a lot of the people that worked at Spin at that time. You know, that was Chuck Klosterman's era, John Dolan, David Skoff, you know, Sia Michael was the editor-in-chief. She was incredibly influential. Karen Gans is at the Times now. There's a whole list of people that came out of that era at Spin. I really looked up to those people and figured that that was what I was going to do. And then I got out of school and I was like, I'm going to do it. And I applied to 70 magazines and I got no responses. <laughs> I got actually got one response from Esquire. And the response, it was from the guy who ran the research department, who's quite sweet in the note. But at the end of the note, he wrote back, I don't understand how a 21 year old kid has been reading Esquire his whole life because, like, this isn't for you. <laughs> and so I was pretty discouraged. And I started to write on the internet a lot. I blogged a lot. I had a blog spot. You just wrote like cold letters to 70 magazines? Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I was completely unconnected. I'm from Long Island. My dad's a cop. My mom is a clerk typist in a high school. I just didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to do anything. After the internship, people, if they make a good impression, like try to find a way to leverage that. I think I didn't talk to any of those people from Spin <laughs> for like two years afterwards because I, I just didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. So... I started to write a lot on the internet, and that was a very fertile time where for 20 bucks you could write an album review if you found the right editor's email, and started to do that more and more, and moved to New York City with my girlfriend after college, got on staff somehow at Pitchfork, and that was a very relevant moment in yeah. music writing. How does that happen? Like, what were you doing for money when you were writing $20 album reviews? Well, okay, a quick story. I couldn't get a job, couldn't get work, couldn't live, couldn't afford to pay my rent. By dint of nepotism, I took an interview at UBS, which had recently changed over from Payne Weber. And the job that I was interviewing for was as a anti-money laundering agent. <laughs> and I got the job. And I got the job strictly because I knew somebody who worked at UBS at a high level, who I sort of tangentially knew through my family. And I took the job, and it was like $58,000 a year, which was a grand fortune. Yeah, that's, a, that's incredible money. And I did it for like... 35 days. And I, I was looking at international transactions and trying to understand whether money coming from Sri Lanka was illegally transported to American bank accounts. It was a, a bizarre job that I have no training for. Yeah. By what method were you trying to figure that out? Intuition? Okay. <laughs> I honestly, it was, it was absurd. And after 35 days, I got an email from Complex Magazine, which is one of the 70 magazines I wrote a letter to. And they said, come in and talk to us. At any point in those 35 days or in the period when you did not receive a response from those 70 magazines, like that seems like a very high volume of rejection. Mm -hmm. At any point in there where you're like, yeah, this is not, not going to happen. I'm going to have to become a bank cop. I wasn't rejected. I was just like ignored. ignored and there's yeah. a difference. You know, it's in Hollywood where I live now, you hear that people get rejected every day. And that has a way of grinding you down and making you cynical and upset. And I wasn't really ground down because I was kind of discovering writers on the internet. You know, yeah. like I was reading Chris Ryan, who's like one of my best friends, who was writing a blog spot about basketball. And I was like, the world is vast. I could do anything. I thought Chris Ryan was making like 400 grand writing <laughs> chaunceybillops.blogspot.com. I mean, he wasn't, but I just didn't know anything. He most certainly was not. Uh, all right. So Complex finally calls, leave UBS, end up at Pitchfork in a full-time gig. And then from there to GQ, were there more stops? No, there was other stops. I went to Complex full-time as a staff writer, and that was a cool, really cool job. And to be a 21-year-old staff writer is insane. Yeah, and that's crazy lucky. I wrote, like, cover stories. I did a Kanye cover story. I did a Carmelo Anthony cover story. I, like, 
I would spend time with like Ukrainian models and, you know, we'd talk about fashion and sneakers <laughs> and it was a very strange job that I was like lightly unqualified for, but had fun doing. Yeah. What was like, uh, how do you write a profile of Kanye at 21? Uh, we did it on the phone. It was a four and a half hour phone call. No shit. He was arranging a st- one of his very first stage shows in Atlanta and he would, for 15 minutes, would just rail on somebody about like where a beam is supposed to go on the stage. And then he would cut back and he'd just jump right back into when he and John Legend met or whatever it was that we were talking about. But he was an oddly inspirational person to me because he was also so aspirational and he was so clearly just like, you can't tell me I'm not this because I am this. And he was so fun to write about. Were you nervous in those moments? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I also didn't know how to write the stories. The stories are bad. You know, I, I, didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. And even after I, I knew I got great stuff from Kanye, like interviewing Carmelo was impossible. Yeah. He's just so boring. He's just not, he was an athlete. But with Kanye, you just basically have to like make sure you don't hang up the phone. Yeah, just publish the transcript, you know. Yeah. One good scene at the top and then publish the transcript. But I never really was nervous talking to celebrities, I, I, but I was nervous to write the story. So you were ambitious then. And what was that ambition? What, what did 21-year-old or 22-year-old Sean want to be when he grew up? I probably wanted to run a magazine. I thought that was the coolest job you could have. So even then it was like, get on the editing side. Yeah, I actually left Complex after a year foolishly to go to Stuff Magazine because I wanted to learn how to be an editor. And they were <laughs> going to make me an editor and let me run a section. And I met a lot of great people that worked there. And I, lo- I did learn how to edit. I learned how to write display copy and <laughs> how to deal with the photo department and all the things that you had to do in the print days. And that was cool. But the book just was not my interest. It wasn't my tone. And left shortly after that to go to Vibe. And that was really like my first real, real job. Why do you say that? What makes it a real, real job? I was there longer. I had way more responsibility. I had way tougher times. I worked 80 hours a week. The job ran from like 06 to 08, which was one of the worst times in media ever. So I learned a lot of hard lessons. I mean, I was there when the book closed. I got very close to Daniel Smith, who ran the magazine, who was like a dynamo and taught me a shitload about how to talk to people and how to tell stories, how to organize, how to package things. Yeah. Um, there's all these things that happen in media that when you're like 15, you don't realize like cover lines, like how important cover lines are. Like what goes on the front of the magazine really matters. And you read those things now, it's easy to make fun of them, but people slave over those things in offices. You know, they really care. They're obsessed. Do you feel like those skills are like applicable to running the kind of operation that you run now? Somewhat. It's very, very, very different. That was much more meticulous. It felt like it was moving fast, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a monthly vibe, you know, yeah. once a month. We publish... 25 stories a day, six podcasts a day. So it's just a different realm. I mean, I was running a review section that probably had 15 reviews in it. That was a month. That was my job. Can we go back to the editing versus writing thing for a second? Because I think maybe aside from Andy Ward, I feel like that's one of the first times I've heard someone say that like from that young an age, that was clear. What do you think was driving you? It's probably not like Andy, you know, who is like such a superlative editor I think I was just like, I'm not really good enough to be a writer. Like, I was pretty cowed by a lot of the people that were around me. And I was also so disappointed in the first few, like, big stories that I wrote Mm -hmm. that – and I I felt like I did know, like, what was good or what should – I always felt like I was like, this movie will be successful. This artist will be successful. That's a huge part of being an editor is, like, calling your shots, picking your spots and saying, Mm -hmm. like, we have to spotlight this person. We have to celebrate this. This is a trend. This is a feature someone should pursue. And I felt very comfortable doing that. And the writing just wasn't that good. So that was, you had sort of like confidence in your taste at that point. 
and you're kind of like, I don't think it's going to work with the writing. I would do it like as a sideline. It was yeah. easy to, easier to write criticism. I felt like I could bang that out pretty quickly. And occasionally I would profile like Robin Thicke, you know, <laughs> and, and it would be fine. And I would turn the piece into John and he would just rewrite it. You know, he would just be like, I just don't have time to like walk through every single step of fixing this with you. So I'm just going to rewrite it. And it was great because that turns out to be a story that I can like show people as my career goes on, even though it's not really my story. Um, but, you know, eventually, like in any job, you grow and you take on more responsibility. Yeah. I got promoted. I started editing features. Like you learn more and more as you're going through the stages. So you like like the uh, shot calling part of it. Did you like managing? I didn't really get a lot of management experience until I got to GQ. And I, a few years later, I took over the website there and inherited a small team of people who were not unlike some of the younger folks that I work with now, which is that they were just very, very sincere and very committed, but didn't always know how to do the thing. But they were very open-minded and they were creative. And you could just, if you pointed them in a direction, they could go. Mm -hmm. And that was like a great experience. I mean, I met a designer named Lindsay Fields there who that was like an inspirational person to meet because she was 23 years old, 24 years old. But you could see she had like all of the talent in one hand. And she made GQ.com like a thousand times better every day because you could just say like, why don't you just try something? And she would stay in the office with me till midnight and we would just try stuff. And that was really cool. It was very exciting to see that somebody could like respond to just being told, try it. Was that job hard? Uh, you know, it's kind of nasty jobs are so bureaucratic and they're so, it's just hard to get things across the line. I mean, I had written for the magazine a little bit before I came on there full time and had good relationships with the people that work there. Some, I mean, I always idolize Jim Nelson. I just think he's like brilliant. And I talked to him a couple of months ago and, uh, it was the most inspiring conversation I've had about magazines in a long time. He, he's just so smart. He just so clearly knows like what makes these things good. It's like full on true believer. It's and I, I so respect that. I mean, the meetings that I would attend at GQ, they had two meetings. There'd be one ideas meeting, which is a general meeting that every book has, and then there'd be a titles meeting where they would just talk about display copy in the mm -hmm. book. So they would just say like, "Here's what the feature is." An editor would read like dummy copy display. And then people in the room would just pitch ideas. And half of them were bad jokes or in poor taste. And half of them were effing brilliant <laughs> puns and, and wordplay. And people were like laughing, built camaraderie. And that was totally a gym thing. He just built that energy. It was like, it makes it a cool place to work, you yeah. know? So yeah, I learned a little bit about management at that time. Though it was still a pirate ship, like Conde didn't really know what it, its digital strategy was at the time. Yeah, I mean, you were the first person who had that job? or There was someone preceded me, but he was there when it was largely a sort of a fashion wheel, and it was exiting the style.com era and yeah. transitioning into GQ.com. And when I took it on, they were like, let's make it more editorial. Let's try to integrate the sensibility of the book onto the web. And that was hard to do because there was no money to do that. All the money was going into the book. I mean, they spent tens of thousands of dollars on photo shoots for the book, and then, you know, not that online. <laughs> Very much not that. Yeah. Was it a hard call to leave GQ and go to Grandland? Yes, because I think when I got to GQ, I started to change a lot, and I was like, I would like think I would like to do this like for my life. I was like, I think I could see myself being a person that, like, buys a brownstone in Park Slope or a small apartment in a brownstone <laughs> in Park Slope and where I was living at the time and goes to Midtown every day and just tries his best to make something good. And at the time I was like, there's no place I'd rather be than this. I was a huge, huge Bill Simmons fan. And Dan Fearman, who worked at GQ and gave me basically my first shot writing for GQ, was running Grandland at the time with Bill. And... I was actually interviewed at the launch for another job 
and it didn't make sense. It was like a sports editing job, and that wasn't really my background. And it was about a, probably a year later when they called me back, and I always wanted to live in Los Angeles, and the job was contingent upon that. And I remember specifically when Grandland launched, there was obviously like a very strange relationship that other sites had to it, and it was immediately criticized and I guess like lightly controversial. And I, I was always kind of like Jim Nelson, true believer with it, where I was like, are you guys fucking kidding me? Like everything on the internet is terrible. And they're like really trying hard to make this good. So I was, I was pretty excited to get a chance to do it. Hey, I'm going to pause things for just a second. And uh, I've got someone in the studio here I want to ask a question to. Basically live in the studio. <laughs> Aaron Lammer, I hear you got a new podcast. That is correct. I have a, a podcast called Coin Talk. Uh, you may have noticed a change in my behavior over the last year. I have. Be, uh, become erratic, <laughs> pull refreshing my phone, willy-nilly. Yeah, I mean, you've always had an addictive personality, but uh, oh, yeah. it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's intensified the last year. So uh, I got real into the crypto the crypto world, and uh, I got Jay Kang, who's been on this this show, real into the crypto world, and we've decided to do our own podcast it's called Coin Talk. It's produced in partnership with Medium. We have all kinds of guests from people who are working in coins to people who are covering it. Uh, this week on the show, you might enjoy uh, Maria Bustios, a uh, writer uh, we've uh, both admired for some time. She's involved in, in a new blockchain journalism project which uh, perhaps is in the overlapping Venn diagram between these two shows. <laughs> Thus, I invade your podcast to show my own bag. Uh, go listen to Coin Talk. One thing for uh, dedicated long-form listeners that I can promise about Coin Talk: sometimes Aaron in the yeah. interviewer chair, he's a little uh, reserved. He's uh, quiet, holds back. Not the case on Coin Talk. It's full Zucru Aaron. Totally decentralized. <laughs> um, you can get it at medium.com slash Coin Talk or just uh, search for Coin Talk in any podcast app. All right, let's get back to Sean. I feel like um, the like attention on Grantland that was there at the beginning sort of like never really dissipated. Yeah. Kicked up quite a bit at the end. Yeah. And I, you and I spent some time talking around the end of Grantland and the beginning of The Ringer, but I haven't talked to you about it in a while. And I wonder now, like with some remove, how do you feel about that site now? I think it's misunderstood. It's just ridiculous and nice to be part of an experience where people tell you, like, I loved that thing that you did. Like, so much of what we do, people rarely have a relationship to it. Mm -hmm. Like, they'll consume single pieces. But Bill, his aspiration really was to build a place that people loved. And all of the people that did stuff and that every day you could stumble upon something that was unique and cool. Bill really pushed to just try new things all the time. And it had a lot of success. The aura and legend of it is really complicated. I mean the site in many ways was built on the back of daily sports and pop culture coverage. You know, it was not built on the back of the things that I think people really imagined. You know, they imagined that it was this bastion of long form and like saving some tradition. And there certainly were pieces like that. It just was not the backbone of the site. The backbone of the site was the people who came in and like wrote every day and they wrote columns and they wrote blog posts 
And it, like, I feel like actually most of that stuff is kind of lost to time. And that's crazy to me because we knew in the moment it was LeBron James has decided to go back to Cleveland. Zach Lowe's got it right right now. That is the internet, and that was Graylin. Like that, that was what it was. It was as much as it was Brian Phillips going for ten thousand words, which I loved and was so honored to be a part of a place that would do something like that. It was Mark Lasani's Derek Jeter diaries. You know what I mean? It was. Mm-hmm. It was those things. Those were the things that I think made it special. And for whatever reason, I think that that is the stuff that has gotten lost. And I felt that acutely when we launched the Ringer because people were like, "Where are these things?" And I'm like, people didn't read those things as much as the other things. They didn't. They didn't show us that they wanted them as much. It's interesting to have like a vocal minority, but then an absence of proof. Why do you think that is? Like, why is it misunderstood in that way? I don't know. I I I, I don't know. <laughs> no I was theory? I was so deep inside of it. I, well, that, I mean, that's part of actually why I wanted to talk to you now is because I feel like when we've talked about this in the past, you were deep in. Mm-hmm. Like it was raw. This is just is most significant professional experience in my life. I worked with so many talented people. Like basically, when I got there. Jay Kang was being transitioned into a writing role. And I basically took on his stable of writers, many of whom he more or less discovered and or kind of shined a light on. And so immediately I picked up Louisa Thomas and Jonathan Abrams and uh, numerous people who have been on this show. And I think I picked up like 13 writers in one day. (laughs) And so I made a series of phone calls, tried to make myself as available to them as I could. And I was basically like, the goal here is to just do the best possible story. And then through the life of the site, I probably worked with every single feature writer at least five or six times. And I learned a lot about what makes a site go day to day. And I'm really proud of all the big, long stories and projects that we made, but it was hard to not feel like it was day to day. There's a million reasons for that. We're on the West Coast. I was up at 6 a.m. every day. We were trying to make the site go. There was this expectation that the site was like really moneyed, but we were just desperate. Like we were, we felt like we were drowning every day. And there were plenty of days where we just felt like we were losing, where we just didn't have it. We didn't have the right piece. You mean you felt like you were drowning because you guys were just producing so much work? Like you felt understaffed? Yeah, there was certainly like an, a feeling of that internally. Like yeah. we could just, could we just get like one more copy editor? Could we just get one more photo editor? We just didn't have a design team, period. That feels like one of the big gaps, right? Between like the perception of that place, which was like you guys were like, uh, you know, in like the Breaking Bad shot, just like lying on a mattress. Yeah, yeah, it was Bill Scrooge McDucking through the gold <laughs> coins. I mean, it's like that was so preposterous. I also found that aspect of the conversation around the site so weird where people were like, we're hearing that the salaries are, are quite large. I'm like, what part of the game is this? Since when do we talk about this in a way that, and it is not in the way now where it's like, let's talk about gender discrimination and, and, right. and pay like disparity. Pay gap stuff. Yeah, it was more just like, I heard this guy who edits stories makes like $28,000 more than I do. That's some bullshit. I just thought that was absurd. And I feel like people have been doing that for all times. Yeah, maybe maybe not quite so pointedly. I think it was because we were we were just trying to make the site good. That sounds real Pollyanna, but every day we were just like, I hope people want to read this story. Do you guys feel like people were punching up? Like people were taking shots. People like wanted, I feel like, I mean, Deadspin maybe, but other places, it just seemed like, and it was a little bit about money, but there's this kind of air on the internet that were like people kind of wanted the place to fail or have turmoils. Like people were excited when. I think part of it was um, we just weren't in New York, you know. And if you're in New York and you just you're at the bar and you just see people every day, yeah. it just it creates a different relationship. I don't know. I just none of none of the editors really, with the exception of one or two people, really lived there. Um, so that was part of it. It's obviously a hu- hugely connected to Bill, who's just. Um, 
incredibly successful and unafraid to say what he feels and is a target. And because of that, I think that the collateral damage is, is what it is. It's the mm-hmm. internet. You know what I mean? It's like things are going to fly. I don't, I don't have necessarily like, that doesn't affect how I remember the site. I just remember at the time we were like, God, it's really hard to do this. Yeah. And we're really trying. And I really just do not feel like the overdog. <laughs> I really feel like the underdog every day. So it felt very strange. That part of it felt very strange. Yeah. I mean, I think like the underdog stories that we tell ourselves are pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, we're do- I'm trying to do it here too. Like what we're doing right now too is very similarly like we're like alone. You know, we have no distribution. We're not connected to anything. We're just like, hopefully you find our stuff. If, if you don't, that's okay. But hopefully you find it. You feel like an underdog? I mean, we're very fortunate. You know, like I think. Studio is really nice, man. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, Bill is benevolent with his willingness to give people chances. Like yeah. the Graylin story is all about that. And hopefully that's the thing here too. I mean, there's just a lot of the shows that are surrounding us right now that we put out are being discovered. Mm-hmm. And that's been helpful. That helps us like make choices that hopefully are not fancy, but are adequate professionally. <laughs> it's not fancy. It's just okay. nice. Thank you. I want to talk about The Ringer, but let's just spend a little bit more time in Grantland. With the benefit of like two years of doing this thing and just like distance and other success, do you feel differently about the end of it than you did then? Well, I just think that there's something that is largely unspoken, which is just that was Bill's site and Bill, his contract was not renewed at ESPN. And so mm-hmm. when then that happened, I feel like almost everybody to a T was concerned about what was going to happen and wanted things to work, but there was an air of inevitability around yeah. that. And so the end of it is complicated because it there was a drawn out period. There was a series of months there where we were doing it after that decision was made and we were trying to make it as good as we could. And some choices were made by management in Bristol that I think a lot of us were a little confused by or frustrated by. And also... For those of us who left when we did, we just really liked working with Bill. I mean, working for Bill is like, he's like, try it. Just try it. That's an important thing to, for me to keep in mind. Like, mm-hmm. We just we get, we get a lot of chances. We get to take a lot of swings at things and not with the full knowledge that they won't always work. And I think that at Grandland, my perception of it was that there would be a retraction, that it would shrink and it would become more politicized and it would become more difficult to navigate. And I didn't want to do that. You know, I was very proud of it, and I continue to have a lot of affection for every single person I worked with, but it was not going to be the same. Just couldn't be the thing? No, no. And you knew that pretty immediately? Within about two weeks. I mean, that summer I had a modest breakdown where I was like, it's important that I go drive into the desert and figure out what my life is going to be after giving like four years of my life to this. <laughs> and that was good. It was useful. Yeah. And uh, and then I had a pretty clear sense. and. I knew Bill was going to do some, want to do something again, mm-hmm. and he did, and we got a chance to do it. Why are you so sure of that? Oh, he does not like to lose. Very competitive. And I think the way that they did him was wrong. I think the way that they communicated the information and all of that was, I could sense how he would respond to it. You mean finding out that your contract wasn't getting renewed on Twitter? Yes. What was that day like for you? It's just a lot of phone calls. You know, <laughs> It was just um, try to be calm try to make sure that everybody else feels calm. That's kind of what I do every day. That's your thing? I'm tr- I try. I try. I mean, I personally have never seen you not calm. Oh. The thing is, is like, what's the worst that could happen? I could be a, I could be a 
anti-money laundering agent right now, living in <laughs> Weehawken, New Jersey, miserable, cold as hell. And I live in Los Angeles, and I get to like come in every day and do this stuff. Like I, It's just, even at the very, very, very worst moment at Granlin, I just knew that I basically had my wife, who's like my partner, and we would be together, where she would have my back no matter what was going to go down. And I was fortunate to work with a lot of my friends, so we yeah. could at least be like, now we go get a drink. <laughs> right. Was there, um, I feel like there was a lot of just, there was just a lot of attention after the, his contract wasn't renewed and then like when it was ending and when you guys left. It just Maybe this is just my little corner of the internet, but it felt loud. It was probably a year corner. I mean, it was a website, you know, like websites, they start and then they close. Like I, I honestly can't figure out why. I think part of it is because there's just something naturally appealing about the big corporation crushing the, the <laughs> small, beautiful thing. You know, it's like a cement roller crushing a beautiful daisy. And like, that wasn't actually what happened, which is not to say that the site wasn't a daisy. It was great. But as we saw from everything that happened at ESPN pretty much since that happened, the corporate machinations that are going on are like so far above our heads. Mm -hmm. And the decisions that were made corporately had ramifications that extended way beyond Graylin and way beyond Bill. And there are always going to be casualties in that. Why this became some sort of like cause celeb, I, I, I don't really know. It's not like anybody knew who I was or knew who Mallory Rubin was. Like, we're not people at all in the world. And that was purposeful. Like, the goal there, especially for people like me and Mal, was just like edit copy. Mm -hmm. Edit copy and think about how to do good stuff. So I think for the people who were leaving who saw their names in the press, I think they were a little like, this is a little much. I prefer not. That is uh, not totally the case for you anymore. Sure. I feel like you're like more of a person in the world now. Mm -hmm. You're making stuff. Hosting a podcast. I do host a podcast. Writing, like, definitely more than you were at Grantland. Yes. How do you do all of that stuff? You got, you've got, what, 70 people there now? Yeah, 70 plus people. You guys are putting 25 things up on the internet every day? Yeah. I mean, I don't manage all of those people. I manage some of them. We have a system, you know? Um, sometimes that system works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, how am I doing it? I'm 35, and I was just reading a story that, someone wrote for the site about Michael Jordan and he retired at 35 after that second trio of championships. And he was like, mentally, I'm just not interested, but physically I could still do it. And I, the second part of it is, is notable to me because like, I feel like I can do it right now. Mm -hmm. Like I can do the job all day, edit stories, work with writers, work with the staff, and then do a podcast in the afternoon and then write at night. And I don't think I'll be able to do it like five years from now, but I can do it now. And I'm figuring out how to write. I just didn't know how to before. And as I figure out like what my voice is and what I'm interested in, it's got actually gotten easier. Who's teaching you how to do that? I've edited so many stories now. I mean, I've edited so many stories, millions of words in the past like seven years. And that definitely helped. I mean, I just, if you work in that environment enough, you pick up tricks, you know? So you feel like uh, you feel like you're starting to find your voice? So I've been writing a lot about movies. Big picture stuff about movies, like 30,000 foot big Hollywood trend yeah. pieces. I'm doing it because Bill was like, you should do it. He's like, when we sit and talk, this is what you're interested in. And it's stupid that you don't do this. And I was always very like, I don't really know anything. And then the longer I started to live out here, I started to learn things. And then I started to feel like, how come people don't see this? And then he'd be like, this is actually annoying that you're not writing this. 
And so he put really pushed me hard to do it. And it was the same thing with the podcast. He pushed me to do both of those things. And I'm really enjoying it. Uh, he pushed you to do them because it's important to have an outlet for that stuff? No. I think he was he honestly was like, we need it. And the site is better if you do it. And I, I bought into that. And it also, it's just like ego. It's vanity. It's like, it's cool to have a byline. It's still cool to have a byline. I'm not ashamed to say that. I, li- I like writing. It's frustrating to think about how much I squandered it for like 12 years. <laughs> but it's been fun. I, I don't know if I'll be able to stay up. To, I was up till one o'clock in the morning writing last night. I do that all the time now. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem sustainable. I don't think so. I don't have kids. You know, it's just me and my wife. I'm thinking about the site and work. And movies and sports, like that's kind of what <laughs> just all day every that's day. That's it, yeah. Do you think that uh, the fact that you're like running the place makes it easier to write? Like, if there was some point in your early twenties when you were like, "I'm not good enough at this writing thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to edit," and now you've gotten to a point where like you've done pretty well with the editing. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, I've, you're running a big operation. And I I just wondered whether getting to that place means. Like the stakes are just lower for the writing stuff, and maybe you can like have more fun. I wouldn't say that. Have you ever tried to write? Yeah, man. I was, I, I followed the exact same path, except I just never came back to it. <laughs> I realized it wasn't good enough, and I did something else. I think the maybe here's the better way to put it. I don't think that it's easier. I've just gotten more comfortable with the idea. Writing is really hard. It's really hard to be clever, and it's like really painful when you see that you've published something that is a bad sentence. Um, that's I say that to writers all the time. I'm like, you really want this to be published? Like, this is a sentence you want to use? And so that part of it is difficult. I'm, I haven't made some transition, like, back to writing. I don't, I'm not sure how long this will last. It's something that is I like right now, but I could table for six months if I felt it was necessary mm-hmm. to focus back on the site. I mean, the site is still totally in development. Like, it needs as much attention as it can get. We're still figuring out how to do it well. I want to talk to you about uh, the podcast for a second. I like the way that you ask questions on the podcast. Thanks. And I was struck. You, uh, Lightly ripping you off. I don't think that's true. Okay. But uh, I was struck. You, you sent out a tweet. You were talking about the guy who made Strong Island. Yeah. Yancey Ford. Yancey Ford. And you said this thing on Twitter. Like, this is one of the best conversations I've had since I've been doing the show. And the, and the show is you interviewing film directors. And I, went, I listened to it. And I think you talk less on that one than any of the ones that I've heard. Mm. I think it was just because it was it was a conversation about something that like really mattered. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I love to talk to, I loved Lady Bird and sitting with Greg Grog was like a real thrill. I think she's really really talented and really just like a cool person. You know, she like sat down in the seat that you're in right now and was like famished and just was like, "Do you guys have any food here?" And all we had was like two bags of Cheetos and we put the Cheetos in front of her and she just like crushed the Cheetos and she was just like such a normal person. It was immediately like fun and cool to be with her and we had like. We had a real conversation where I was like, oh, we're the same age. We like the same things. We're interested in the same stuff. She made something that I thought was brilliant. It was fun to explore it with her. But Lady Bird is a movie. You know, it's ultimately as meaningful as a movie like that can be to you. It's a movie. Yancey's movie is about the murder of his brother and everything that happened to him in that time and what's wrong with specifically where I'm from. My father's a cop and that story is about what cops do and don't do on Long Island. And so I was, even if I barely talked, I was really just struck by his ability to communicate ideas that someone like me can't communicate, that I, I just didn't have access to. So I, I, like, I like that. What are you getting out of doing the show? 
I, I enjoy it. I, I guess I've kind of learned how to broadcast. It's been fun to just work with a producer, my producer, Zach, and he's just taught me a lot about how to talk and how to communicate. I've been obsessed by movies for decades, and I watch hundreds of movies, and they're a huge part of my life. And so to sit across from a person who made one is like, it's a real Christmas present every time to unwrap it. And sometimes it's like, I got socks. And sometimes it's like, I got the Millennium Falcon, you know? And that's... They're fun to listen to, man. It seems like you're having fun. Thanks. I'm, I'm trying to make it good, like all things here. It's like, what can we, how can this be a good version of it? Um, do you not have, like, problems to put, like, fires to put out all the time? Every day. Every day. Yeah. Like, I now have some people that, that work for me. I've got some projects. Mm-hmm. And there's fucking problems all day. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm just solving problems all day. I mean, they never really get solved, right? Like, they're they're all just... Yeah, I'm just, like, putting, putting like, little band-aids on problems all day. Yeah, it's a continuum of anxiety. And (laughs) I... What I try to do is just, like, to listen to people as much as I can Mm -hmm. and try to be compassionate because it's just... I think it's really hard to be on the internet. And this is an internet company in a lot of ways. You know, we're, we have like a documentary coming out that's going to be on linear television. That's really exciting. Maybe we'll have more of those. But for the moment, podcasts, writing, video, it's internet. Help me understand what you mean by it's hard to be on the internet. It's an unmediated space of angst and meanness and a willingness to just tell people that they're bad even when they've worked hard on something. And... That's like the number one anxiety that I feel like we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis with everybody, myself included. I'm like, God, I don't want to publish the bad thing. And sometimes you do. Sometimes you make a mistake and you publish a piece that's like useless or not smart. And you have to figure out how to do better next time. But I think it gets in people's heads Mm -hmm. in a way that it wouldn't if you were working at Spy in 1989. Like you'd publish a piece and it would be like a lesser Spy column. But nobody would directly communicate to you that you're an idiot. So if I uh, was like 26 and writing for you and wrote something and got clowned, came into your office and it was in my head, like how do you help folks in that spot? It's hard to just say have confidence, but like they wouldn't be here if we didn't think they were incredibly talented. Like it's an honest thing. It's part of the proposition of come be a part of this. Like Mm -hmm. you have something to say or you have somewhere to go to find someone else who has something to say. And... If they don't believe that, then they shouldn't do it. It shouldn't be their career. You know, you, ha- you have to have some modicum of confidence. So there's no way to solve that feeling. I think people, it'll be interesting to see what happens now with the next basically 10 years of people who've come up in the industry in a strictly digital sense. When you're strictly digital, your relationship to the reader and audience is so much different. There's no omniscience. You know, it's, it's evolving. It's like a, the life of Pablo, you know, Kanye's <laughs> album where he's just like editing it and editing it, editing it forever, the same way that writers are like, editing their persona and their identity and the stories that they're doing as part of this long story that they're telling. Think those kids are going to burn out? I don't know. You got to be really committed to waking up every day. It's funny that I do find that there are a lot of sports writers who have brought the ethic of like the daily or weekly column to the internet. And that hasn't resulted in a ton of burnout. You know, there are people who think, well, the games are happening, so I got to go. I got to write. Mm-hmm. Or the draft is happening next week, so I got to write all my preview pieces and get it all going. And that part of it is good. I think it's a lot harder when your beat is more ill-defined. You know, if your beat is like, I'm really good at writing personal essay, you can burn out <laughs> yeah. really quick. When you decide someone's 
got something to say? Like, how do you figure that out? What are you looking for in someone who maybe hasn't written that much? How do you hire people? That's a good question. Bill's number one sentence uttered to me is, who, who are some like young people that are doing cool stuff? Who's some, who's out, who should we be looking at? Like He says it all the time. We have a full staff, tons of writers, and he always just wants to find new people. And I think it comes in all forms. A good joke in the middle of a piece that you weren't expecting, good turn of phrase, the right interview subject that you f- crops up in a story, even just the right angle. You mm-hmm. know, the angle is like such a huge part of what it's like to write on the internet. It's like, does this headline work and will it reel me? And then what you find inside. I, one of the interesting things that has happened since Grantland closed is that a lot of other sites have figured out how to be better at all of this stuff. And so that's one of the things that has made it more competitive. Like the NewYorker.com right now has taken lessons from every great digital publication and hired more good people and dispersed them across this terrarium of insight. And it's just hard to compete with that. It's just like every day I got to be like, shit, what's Gia going to write about <laughs> yeah, this? I was just about to say, you know, like I just, you're really just kind of talking about Gia. <laughs> no, I, honestly, like a, an enormous amount of people. I have, I think what they've done in the last couple of years is really crazily good. Yeah. And especially because there's two versions of digital journalism. One of them is like, here's our big feature. But most of them are like, here's my column. I'm not willing to give them like full props until the board's report is gone. But the website's good. No comment. There's a great Ringer story that Rob Harville wrote a couple of years ago about Andy Borowitz. I would encourage you to read that maybe <laughs> instead of the Borowitz report. Um, so people are getting better, which makes your job harder. But what it's interesting. So your answer to the question of what you're looking for, that was almost all like what's on the page. Mm-hmm. Is that... Um, well, okay. So that's interesting because a lot what, what tends to happen now is... With people that come and join us, we're always looking for like other ways to use them too. So, if they live in Los Angeles, it's like, how can we get them on a podcast? Or if they're in New York, how can we get them on a podcast? How can we put them in front of a camera? See if they have other talents there. How can we be more of a creative factory instead of just a website? And that's exciting. That's fun to try to figure that out. And so it's better if you if you meet Micah Peters, you're like, oh, Micah Peters is really charismatic and yeah. smart. And how can we show the world like how smart and charismatic he is? Like he can write. But there's more. Which one of those things is like um, most valuable to the ringer? I think we do want, we hope that everybody can have some, play some part in all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a financial perspective, I think the podcast network is a very helpful, is a huge part of the business, like no doubt. Yeah. But it's not incumbent upon people who are hired to be writers to be podcasters because we still want great stories. Like the site works as like a, it's a bullhorn. It's a pamphlet that is handed out to the world. How big a part of the business is it? Oh, I don't, I don't even. I couldn't even say. I could tell you that we have eighteen feeds and twenty-seven shows. You guys make a lot of podcasts. Yeah, you and know it, about that. I do know a little bit about it. Yeah, they all have um, ads, mm-hmm. and they all like find an audience. Like you guys have built this network effect, and I wonder. It seems like the podcasts and the podcast business in particular it seems like it's doing great. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, across this industry, text on the internet seems to not be doing great. I think that's accurate. Financially. And so one thing as a casual observer of your organization that I've wondered is um, why keep doing uh, text on the internet? Well, me and Bill and all the other editors like writing. And we think that it basically like inspires a point of view. And 
the writing forces people to think through things and then you can iterate that through the podcast form. Like there's different versions of podcasts, as you know, like you work on a lot of narrative storytelling. We don't do very much of that. We might in the future, but for the time being, it is this sort of like idea driven conversational thing. It, was, mm -hmm. it is like, how can you be smartest friend in the bar? You know, that's one of the propositions. And writing actually kind of helps you get to the bottom of those things. It does help people figure out what it is they want to say before they have to stand in front of a microphone and say it. The other thing too is, we do want to do feature reporting. You know, we do want to tell stories in a way that we can't yet on podcasts or we haven't, we've chosen not to. And it also allows us to respond to news. It allows us to, I don't know, like I wish we would get like a little bit more adventurous with our writing and I'm hopeful that we'll, we will do that. But what would that look like? I don't know. I don't, maybe that's why we're not doing it. Just I, like take I, more chances. Yeah. Change the format. Why don't why don't we have like more satire on the site? You know, like Jason Concepcion. <laughs> where's Where's your Borowitz report? Well, <laughs> maybe you're right. Maybe I've made a mistake. But like, if you if you read Jason Concepcion, he's basically writing like elevated fan fiction, Shakespearean plays, ridiculous things about the NBA. Yeah, and he's like a genuinely creative and inspired person who just makes that stuff. And I want more people to understand that like you can try it. You can try to do stuff like that because. Our job is not to be the New York Times. Like we're just never going to be that. And it's been interesting in the course of the last like eighteen months to figure out like what people think is valuable. Like if you're not covering Trump and the Me Too movement on a daily, breathless basis, do you? Is it worth it? That's a proposition I think a lot of media companies are coping with right now. Yeah. Um, and I think that it is because I think I know the people who read the site and listen to the podcast, and they're like, definitely made my day better. So I think that that's valuable. You guys, for the most part, have not really covered politics. Is that off, accurate? Off and on. I mean, John Favreau did, hosted a podcast. We have we we covered actually the run up to the election fairly sincerely. Brian Curtis went to the conventions. Yeah. Um, Justin Charity does a lot of politics writing for us in general, but we haven't committed like a huge amount of resources to it because it, it it was honestly not a part of the original plan. It's not the expertise, myself included, of a lot of the people that work here, and we ha kind of have like enough to do that we've set out to do in terms of coverage that we're not even hitting at the moment. Yeah. So it's difficult to feel like we have any sort of stranglehold on that stuff. Is it a burner to um, see this podcast that you guys incubated here, keeping it 1600 become this pod saves America behemoth? Uh, no, I mean, I, I really like Fabs and I was lucky to edit him when he was writing for the site and we knew right away that they were really good. And I think we honestly thought, that Hillary would win. and Tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that you feel the same way. And it was hard to know what to do in that situation. And those guys are really ambitious, and it's incredible what they've been able to build. I just, I have a lot of admiration for it because I know how hard it is to start something new. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm stoked for those guys. I mean, would it be good to have them in business with us? Of course. But that wasn't really the plan. I feel like to give, like, due diligence to the name of this show, I should ask you about the feature writing here. Oh, yeah, sure. And even if it was part of the way that Grantland was misunderstood, I mean, the day the site shut down, I put like, you know, the like Grantland funeral post on long form. Yep. And, All the best uh, stuff. You know, we had 40 stories or 50 mm -hmm. stories, something like that in four years. And uh, it was a big part of the place. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it has been less of an emphasis here. Is mm -hmm. that fair? Why? It's hard to get people to read them. It's relevant to the people that we hired. You know, we did we hired Jordan Kahn, 
Yeah. We hired Katie Baker. You know, we hired Brian Curtis. Like those people, I knew from working with them, just knew the form, knew how to write good stories. I think they're writing stories that are as good as anything that, that, that they did at Grantland. I'm so proud of what the stuff that they do, and I think that we have actually run a lot of pieces that. You know, this is kind of a dumb thing to say, but we haven't totally like gotten credit for um, whatever that may be. And because we're this like detached universe, it's hard for us to make noise around something that we put a lot of time into. And that's a big part of like the long form gambit in 2018 is like, how can you turn all your social channels and all your employees and this vast network of people that you're connected to and tell them like this matters? But if you don't have that that naval ship to direct people then it's hard to get people to read the story. And then there's a lot of effort that goes into something that just doesn't find people. And it doesn't mean that I don't care about stories like that. And it doesn't mean we're going to stop doing them because we do still do them. I mean, I just edited two really smart, clever features over the course of the last 24 hours that will run next week. But it, it can't be the central identity because it's that wouldn't be – that wouldn't be the business. In the same way that I didn't think it was, quote unquote, the business at Grantland. I mean, the business at Grantland was Bill Barnwell being the smartest person on football and being there for you to explain what happened on Sunday. Those were the things that people read the most. And so naturally, we've shifted a little bit away from, I think, what people deem to be what our identity ought to be. So let's get back to that first question I asked, which is basically like, you're a year and a half in. How close has it gone to the plan? I don't have an answer for that because I don't think that my plan is stupid. You know what I mean? Like whatever I thought was right about the internet has changed a hundred times since I was sitting in a rented home in Hollywood with like five other people. And we were trying to figure out like, what would be a good version of internet writing? And what would be a good podcast? Like all that stuff was wrong. You know, that, like I said, it's like we were wrong, but the plan is still going according to plan. We launched with Bill's show and the watch podcast, Chris and Andy show those shows are still going and they're still doing great. So basically from there, we've like spun out an entire universe of thought. That part of it, that kernel of it totally worked. I mean, it's incomplete. Like the media business is so erratic and crazy that I'm just excited that we're getting a chance to do it every day. I'm, I'm not being like a schmuck about that. I'm totally sincere. Like I'm very grateful that people are into any of the stuff we do. Um, it doesn't, if my plan was wrong, that's like probably fine. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think like if you and I had been having this conversation, then I think you would have probably said we have a plan and it is almost certainly wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't know who's ever right about this stuff. Right. Like the person who comes out and says, like, I solved it is fired the next day. Right. Yeah. I mean, a bunch of people got fired this week who had pivoted to video. Right. That I mean, the other thing that's so amazing about these cycles now is like everything's sped up. Mm -hmm. So even like. Uh, the like easily mocked like pivot idea that wasn't that long ago and it already didn't work. It like, was like four months. I know. <laughs> and like, we're already off to whatever the next thing is going to be. I know. I know. I, it, it's just a, here's the thing. We didn't take on some massive investment. We didn't set some series of goals where that we had to hit traffic wise or audience wise or revenue wise. We were just like, let's just try to make this stuff good and see if people will connect with it. And slowly but surely they have, and it has given us stability, mm -hmm. which is great. I never understood, and I think we were kind of criticized for this back in the Grandland days, like, 
our audience wasn't strong enough on Facebook. That was a thing you would hear back then. It would just be like, how can you increase your footprint on Twitter? And we were just like, we're just trying to make it good. <laughs> like, I don't, I, this is not a strategy session. I'm doing a lot more strategy sessions these days, which I like doing. But ultimately, the, the belief is if we keep trying to make it fun or thoughtful or unique, we'll find our niche. And s- some of this stuff will work itself out. So far, that's gone okay. What are the, uh, like, what are those strategy sessions around? Like, what are the problems you feel like you have to solve now? How do we get more people to know what Kevin Clark's Sloan Newsday is? You know, like, how do we get more people to listen to the Bachelor Party podcast? How do we, like, we have all these properties. We have this, this mill and just want more and more people to find the stuff. Do you feel like you have started to find that niche though? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's evident to anybody who I think reads the site that like, I think we have a pretty strong voice in the NBA. I think in a small period of time, we've managed to find a handful of writers and a point of view that is distinct and fun and knows what it's talking about, but isn't afraid to take chances in that sport specifically. And people are reading it. So I'm really pleased about that. As far as everything else goes, I mean, People are mostly listening to the podcast. That's great. Yeah. It's really hard to cover the NFL in 2018. It's really hard to cover pop culture in 2018. Pop culture is enormously diffuse now. You know, there's nobody is watching the same show anymore. Nobody's listening to the same record. Do you think the NBA is easier to cover because it's more fun? It's definitely a factor. I think it's um, it's more of a blank canvas too. The NBA doesn't slap people on the wrist for using their the footage that they put out in the world. You know what I mean? You can iterate on an NBA game video and make something fun out of it. You just can't do that anywhere else. Yeah, and I mean, like, also, more and more people feel terrible watching what is currently America's largest sport. Yep. Yeah, they feel bad. And there's also only so many times you can say America's largest sport is bad. You know, we published any number of columns and stories investigating those feelings and ideas. (laughs) You know, we grappled with the Colin Kaepernick story all year, the same way many organizations did. It's hard to write a story or do a podcast if people are like, you guys really nailed it. You figured it out. Like, <laughs> it's just, it is a fucking bummer. It is. It's frustrating. I am a football fan, though I'm a deeply skeptical of football, as many people are now. I want it to be safe and to be a place where protest is not considered a hostile act and where there's... Um, some modicum of good sense used at every stage of the game, but like that's not that's not real. That's not going to happen. There is this one niche, and I guess it is now that I think about it, like a little centered around the NBA. But I have a theory. I have like a media current media environment theory for you, which is like the volume on Twitter and also the weird like time shifting stuff makes it a bad place to deliver context on large events. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you guys have done this thing like after the Cavs blew up the team Mm -hmm. at the trade deadline after like LeBron traded half his team. I remember having this thought, which uh, was the first time I was like, the ringer is going to have this covered. Yeah. We hear that a little bit more now, I think. And like, I know Twitter is going to be insane and most of the jokes will suck or be the same. And like ESPN is going to be like too much. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard for me to follow. Like, and I was like, "Uh, those guys will have it figured out. Yeah, like, there'll I, be uh, there'll be like some jokes mm-hmm. and some context, and uh, it dawned on me that perhaps you guys are like uh, found the lane. Man, I hope that's true. I think we have actually 
that is a thing that has been planned that we figure just figure it out over time. It's like you kind of have to be there for the moment. Yeah. And that actually is the m- biggest managerial quagmire because the moment will happen whenever it wants to happen. Right. And the Blake Griffin trade is a funny thing. I was home and not working, um, home in New York, and I was flying back when it happened. And it, it happened at 4 p.m. on the West Coast. And so what happened is the writers got to work, the editors started editing pieces, three things in motion, and Bill called in emergency podcast in his office. And a ton of people read our stuff, and a ton of people listened to that show an uncommon amount relative to our, whatever our audience is. And it's because we were there for the moment and we were on the yeah. West coast and everybody was all still together working. And so we pulled it off and it worked. Same thing with the calf stuff. If you're there and you're smart enough, it'll work. But sometimes stuff happens on Saturday at six in the morning. You know, the, right. I, I vividly recall president Trump taking a shot at Steph Curry and it was a Saturday morning, and I was like, what the hell? Like, there's no one on. There's no copy editor available. I don't have a writer who I can turn to to say, what do we do with this? And frankly, what do we do with it anyway? If I was to foist an angle upon somebody, what would I have foisted? I don't even know. This is so obscure and, and insane. So it just depends on if you can be there. Yes, that all sounds right to me. There was this moment after Game 7 when the Cavs beat the Warriors, and I feel like it wasn't there. Like, I remember driving home from Aaron's house. I'd watch Game 7. Aaron's, like, a huge Warriors fan. He was, like, catatonic. Yep. And I remember driving home, and there was, like, there was nothing for me to listen to, and I couldn't believe it. Yep. All I wanted was, like, smart people to tell me about what just happened. That is definitely, like, a value proposition now, too. You know, it's like, we just got to go when something happens. I just did it with the Oscars. I, like, wrote a column when the Oscar nominations were announced. I wrote it in 90 minutes, and then I came into the office, and I... I called Amanda Dobbins and Cam Collins and I was like, let's do this. Let's talk about it. Let's break it down as quickly as possible. And people are more interested in listening to that too. It's really challenging. I think a lot of media companies are going to be pretty frustrated by that as time goes by. Why do you say that? Because everything's so easy to get now and a couple of companies have figured out how to do stuff and it's going to force them to continue to change. It's kind of like what happened to print magazines when digital started to make sense and cohere where now like there are a lot of digital companies and those companies are trying to learn how to respond to an ever-quickening environment and they're going to have to change things. They're going to have to change their workforces. They're going to have to change the, the way that they execute on a day-to-day basis. And it's not just like give me the 150-word blog post. Like it actually has to be a little bit different than that. That version of the internet is kind of starting to die a little and there's going to be one that's like how fast can you get me good information, which is that's scary. That's really hard. And when you do that, you lose some of the bad stuff, but then you lose also some of the big stuff because you spend all day trying to do a good version of fast. Mm-hmm. It's really challenging. So the like the expectations for media consumption are ever increasing, but also like it has to be good now. Yep. And we're just a small shop. <laughs> Come on, man, you're fancy. Um, so what happens next? Got to keep making it every day. Got to keep making it. I, I hope we'll do bigger stuff. I hope we'll like make some more movies. And you know, Bill has a desire to grow it. I don't. I don't think we're going to grow it like exponentially in terms of our staff or anything like that. But hopefully, more people start reading it. Hopefully, more people start listening. Whenever um, I'm doing my podcast, I'm talking to a director, and I'm like, "So what? What's? How do you choose what to do next?" That's like a bad question I always ask. And 
they work in Hollywood, so they like are legally bound to not discuss what they're doing. And they're like, well, I've got a lot of ideas, and I'm figuring some things out, and I'm quite excited about one project. And I'm like, can you tell me about it? And they're like, not yet, but next time, next time I'll tell you about it. And um, so yeah, next time. <laughs> You've got it all figured out. You just can't quite tell me yet. I'll let you believe that. I have one more thing for you, and then I'll let you go. Uh, I emailed some of your friends to ask them what I should ask you. Oh, boy. They all said the same thing, which is that I have to ask you about your Twitter. <laughs> okay. What does that mean? Well, there's some consensus among your friends. Great. This uh, is awful. Wow. That your uh, Twitter presence is a little stiff. Yeah. Wooden is the word that was used. I've heard it used, yeah. 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 So what should I do about that? I don't have any advice for you. I was just wondering why... Um, you're so unwilling to take risks on the internet. <laughs> um, man, this makes me feel really bad about the world. I don't know, man. Twitter is so unnatural. It's so wrong. You know, it's just, it's the cause of so many bad days for people. And I think that I'm pretty much only on there to be like, read this thing that someone else did or read this thing that I did or listen to this thing that someone else did. Or like, I saw a movie, I liked it. Here's why. And then I'll use like two adverbs. And for whatever reason, all of my self-conscious, bad acting media friends think that it's funny to give me a hard time about that. <laughs> and uh, they, it, it works. It works every time. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly being honest. I know you are. Hey, Sean, thank you. Max, this was fun. Thanks. <laughs> That's like the first not honest thing you've said. Uh, <laughs> no, it's... I'm, I'm honored. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks to them. Thanks to uh, everyone at The Ringer for hosting me last week, particularly Kaya McMullen, who engineered the session. It was so uh, decadent to have someone engineering for us. Uh, thanks very much to our sponsors, MailChimp, Mubi. Remember, you can get 30 free days at Mubi.com slash longform. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash longform uh, for 30 free days of Mubi's fantastic streaming service. And uh, check out those podcasts we mentioned. One is called Dear Franklin Jones. It's from Stitcher and uh, Jonathan Hirsch. You can listen to it wherever you are listening to this show. Go check that out. And uh, go check out Aaron's podcast. It's called Coin Talk. It's all about that crypto world. And uh, I've been listening to it. Uh, I can give it an enthusiastic recommendation. Go check those out. And thanks also, of course, to Sean Fennessy, one of my favorite people in the world to talk about the media business with. And uh, I'm so glad he finally came on the show. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.